with a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, thank you for you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that you have invited us in order to study and to learn from your word. Bless our time together, Lord. Help us to go deeper into your truth. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, Marcionism. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, found a comic online. Of course, you can find anything online, but... Uh, it's a cartoon that illustrates what I think a lot of people have a perspective on the Bible. So on the left-hand side, you've got the Old Testament God, who's the mean dude. He's looking for a fight. He's got his fist ready. And then on the other hand, you've got the New Testament God, open-handed. He's got the flowers. He's just very nice. This is a common perspective on what God is like in the Bible, the way that he is depicted and portrayed. Old Testament, bad, mean. New Testament, nice, kind. You ever heard that kind of perspective? Yes. If you have, or if you yourself have been tempted to it, <laughs> then we're, we're tiptoeing toward Marcionism. The question at, at issue is, is the God of the Old Testament to, the same as the new? Is, is God, as we meet him in the Old Testament, is that the same Lord is that the same God, or is it a different God, fundamentally, in his character in his character, or in his person? That's what we're going to take up in today's study. Before we do, though, as we do each week, a quiz for fun, all right? This is not uh, a grade, a verdict on your faith, unless you fail all of them, in which case, no. Just kidding, just kidding. Um, all right, five questions. First of all, just give your, don't, don't shout it out, just circle true or false, your, just your knee-jerk reaction. Jesus shows compassion, but the Old Testament God of wrath does not. Number two, the Old and New Testaments are both equally parts of the Bible. Number three, love is the opposite of the law. Number four, Jesus didn't come to fulfill the law, but to abolish it. And number five, God's character changed between Old and New Testament times. Fill in your answers. We will revisit that at the end of today's study. Need Bibles? Got lots of them on the shelf. Don't feel guilty. We can grab. We can grab plenty of them. All right. So, what is Marcionism? Number one on your handout. Marcionism is the heresy that divorces the Old and the New Testaments. It's the heresy that puts. A, of course, there already is a line, a division between Old and New Testament. We call them Old and New Testament but utterly divorces them and says that Old Testament, New Testament, got nothing to do with each other. We don't want to have anything to, to do with one another. We keep them separate. This is one of the, we've seen uh, with different heresies along the way. Sometimes they're named after a dude. Sometimes they're not. Uh, this is one of those cases where it is named after a particular guy named Marcion. Okay. So let's say just a little bit about Marcion. This goes back pretty, pretty far. So Marcion was born already in 85 A.D., we can date him 85 to 160. He lived a pretty long, full life for a guy that day and age. He was the son of a bishop. So always watch out for those pastor's kids, right? <laughs> Troublemakers. He was from, I don't know how we say it, Sinope in Turkey. Went to Rome. Where are the Johnsons here? Jeff and Joy? They just, oh, they just, they just left. Busted. <laughs> well, they were just traveling over in, in Turkey and in the areas. I was going to ask them if they happened to go to Sinope. But uh, he ultimately went to Rome became a wealthy ship owner, and he was known for being a really good organizer, 
Okay? He was kind of a politician in his own way. He was able to stir people up, bring them together, and get folks proclaiming and announcing the same thing, which is a helpful skill to have if you're a heretic and you're trying to get everybody going in the same direction. So that's a little bit just about Marcion himself, but let's talk about what were the teachings of Marcionism. First of all, we have to say, this sounds bad, but it was a very successful heresy. <laughs> and how do you identify, define a successful heresy? Well, he got a lot of people to follow it, A. And B, he got a lot of response. He elicited all kinds of response from Orthodox Christians. So all of the heavy hitters of that day, guys like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr, um, Origen, big teachers of the early church, they all were compelled to respond to Marcion and Marcionism. So in that respect, it was a very successful heresy. The word got out, and here we are, you know, two millennia later, still talking about Marcionism. So good on you, bud. Successful in that respect. But what was the substance of it? The key thing is that Marcionism rejected the Old Testament. Rejected the Old Testament and, along with it, its deity, the God of the Old Testament. That's not the God that we know in the New Testament, Marcion would say. And so he's like, we're just not even going to have anything to do with the Old Testament. And in fact, he even found a lot of the New Testament to be suspect. Among the Gospels, as he got into the Gospels, really Luke was his favorite Gospel because it was the one that he thought did the, the best job of just giving a pure, simple teaching of the good news, which focused on Jesus' ethical teachings. Um, yes, there were miracles in there and so forth, but it didn't have that same, well, I'm just going to say it, it didn't have that same degree of Jewishness. That was a big problem for Marcion. He really um, had, had an extra grind against the, the kind of uh, Judaism of the Old Testament. He, it espoused a simple message of love and compassion in the teachings of Jesus. That's all we want to focus on. Jesus, nice guy. And so it was, in many respects, anti-Semitic. That's a um, an anachronism, that word is a more modern term, but it was anti-Jewish, for sure. As well as being antinomian, which is a fancy way of saying it was against the law. Okay? It was against the law. So the, the law of God said this does not apply to Christians today, and so we just want to set it aside. Instead, we're going to focus on the, the pure, simple teachings of Jesus, just to be kind, to love one another. All right, let me ask you, does it sound like any teachings like this, Marcionism, even though that name might not be known anymore, does that sound like something that's still out there in our culture today? Yeah, you better believe it. Among Christians? Sure. I think for too many believers, they tend to be implicit Marcionites. There's a name for your church, right? St. <laughs> Luke's Implicit Marcionism Congregational Church. Um, I think for many Christians, they operate with a, a de facto distinction with the Old Testament and New Testament. New Testament's good. That's where we want to focus. Old Testament, God's bad. He's mean. He's judgmental. We just want to be about the New Testament. Now, there's distinctions to be made between Old and New Testament, for sure, how God has revealed himself in full in his son Jesus. But we are not anti-Old Testament. We certainly aren't throwing it out of our Bible. But there can be de facto attitudes among believers. Here's a quote from uh, a guy who, in some respects, I've, I've learned from, named Andy Stanley. He is pastor of, I think, the biggest, one of the biggest churches 
in the country, but he can also have a lot of influence. Um, he's good on like leadership type stuff, but sometimes his theology is a little bit wonky. And he said recently that Christians must unhitch Old Testament from their faith. This is Andy Stanley. And what he meant by that is, listen, there's just too much baggage when we bring in kind of the, the teachings and especially the laws of the Old Testament. You know, you go back into it and there's all these stories that as Christians, we don't want to have to explain things that look like, like genocide even. Like, what are we going to do with that? Better off, he says, just unhitch from that. Focus on the New Testament. If you were to ask Andy Stanley, are you a Marcionite? Do you want to tear the Old Testament out of the Bible? Of course, he's going to say no. But if, when statements like this are made, there's that kind of implicit Marcionism where it's like, okay, no, we don't want to have anything to do with that, with that Old Testament. I can understand some of the appeal of that. There are challenges with the Old Testament. But taken too far, it undermines our faith. And in fact, even does a disservice to the gospel itself. You can't understand the fullness of the good news unless you've also got the old news, if I can put it that way, right? You need both. But let's just briefly make a case for Marcionism. As I say, there's some things I think that you can emphasize that's, that aren't so bad about it. So, for instance, number two on your handout, Marcionism stresses the freedom of the gospel. Marcionism stresses the freedom of the gospel, of what Christ has done for us. Go to Galatians chapter 5. And Marcion loved Paul. Paul was his favorite guy. That's who he would go to again and again. So letter of Galatians is a letter of Paul. So, uh, Galatians chapter 5, let's start with the first verse. Paul just lays it out here, puts it right out there. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's the yoke of slavery that he's talking about there? Sin. Well, sin would be uh, the most natural answer, but in this context, he's actually not talking about sin. He's talking about the law. He's talking, about, he's talking about the, the law. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Like, whoa, Paul is not pulling any punches here. He's saying, listen, you have free, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Don't go back to this empty, legalistic, law-based religion where it's all just about what are you doing in order to make yourself acceptable and approvable to God. If we're to look at Marcionism and say, does it is there any truth to it? This is a point that we could say, okay, there's, there's some inkling of truth. As we've seen with each of these heresies, in pretty much every case, they're not just patently, crazily false, although maybe this one gets as, as close, but... Um, there is, there's always something there that you're like, yeah, there's some, there's some appeal to it. So that radical freedom of the gospel of Christ that we have in Jesus is certainly appealing. Look at another passage like Matthew 5, okay, in the Sermon on the Mount, to see why it might be, uh, again, alluring to follow in the footsteps of Marcionism. So this is at the end of Matthew 5. Picking up with verse 43, 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do, you, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Marcion would look at a text like that, and he'd be like, boom, it's right there. You've heard that it was said. Say, oh, let's talk about the Old Testament. You've heard that this sort of thing was said. No, case in point, Jesus is not quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the teachings and the traditions of the rabbis in this particular place. But Marcy would say, never mind. He's talking about what came before. And now I'm telling you that what really matters is the law of love. Love is all that matters for freedom Christ to set us free. We are not no longer under that yoke of slavery from the old. So he would say, and just to give one more verse, uh, Romans 10, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Marcion would say, boom, I rest my case, all right? In Jesus, you're free, the law is gone, you don't got to worry about that anymore, get rid of that Old Testament stuff, stick with the New Testament, where now the message is simply love. All right, let's pause there. If you were going to try to poke holes in that, where might you start? What are some of the, the weaknesses of that teaching? Where, where can you already sense that Marcionism uh, has some fatal flaws to it? Yeah, Hans? Well, Jesus said something about, he didn't come to get rid of the laws, but to Okay, very good. Jesus said something, we didn't come to get rid of the laws, but to fulfill them. We'll come back to that in just a minute. That's right. Good. Other things that you might say to kind of poke holes, push back on Mr. Marcion here. Yeah, Leslie? Okay, great. So without the law, why would we need the gospel, right? So without the problem, what do you need the solution for? Now, um, Scripture says that even apart from the law, I was dead apart from the law. So what the law does is it really um, brings out sin and it shows the way it's, that's wrong. But the law enables us to see where the problem is, how we have fallen short, what has gotten us into this, into this mess, so that then we need the gospel. Yeah, good. Yeah, Sandy? I heard somebody give an example that was like a doctor talking to someone with lung cancer and saying, uh, you should quit smoking. Uh, you'll smell so much better. Right. So nice. You know, instead of showing them what the real problem and what the lungs actually look like. Oh, good. Diagnosing yeah, that's good. So Sandy saying um, to, to try to throw out the law or to soft pedal it is like a doctor who's talking to somebody who's, you know, smoking two packs a day and they say to them, you know what, um, if you didn't smoke, you would smell better. And maybe girls would like you more, right? Ra for instance, rather than, oh, by the way, your lungs are going to be tar. You know, like, well, that might be a helpful word to, to get as well. Like, in other words, it, I've, I've heard one person put it this way. It's when the law just kind of gums you to death. So you try to just take the teeth out of it and it just gums you to death instead. Because when you talk about love and to be kind to others, that sounds nice, it is nice, but isn't that also law? Isn't that also thou shalt? 
And in many respects, the law, the command to love God above all else and to love your neighbor as yourself, like this is the ultimate ramping of the law. You might say, oh, it's love, so that sounds nice. But you're missing the fact that that's the most difficult law to keep of all. Don't take the teeth out of it. You've got to feel the full brunt of it, as Leslie says, that then we turn to and recognize our need for the gospel, what we're being saved from. So did Marcy, is um, this guy not believe in the Ten Commandments? No. He, I, so did Marcy believe in the Ten Commandments? No. Uh-uh. He did not. He's like, we don't need that anymore. In his, it's all, Scripture, New Testament says, it's all fulfilled in the law of love. Now, we would say that that law summarizes and encapsulates all the Ten Commandments. But he would say, no, we're just set that aside that the, the law of love is different and distinct from the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Yeah, George? Yeah, it seems to be, um, if you separate them, it doesn't work. Uh, yeah. There's so many references. Oh, yeah. Prophecies and things in the Old Testament yep. and in the New Testament first back and then back and forth. Seems like I read there was twenty thousand, you know. Yeah. Prophecies. Oh, that's a, that's a great point. I wish I had brought up. Uh, There's a really cool kind of pictographic that was made a couple of years ago showing all of those intersections yeah. of the Old and New Testament. So George is saying, like, you get rid of the Old Testament, and what are you doing? You, you can't understand the New Testament because there's so many references, whether it be direct quotations as well as allusions, echoes from the old. You, you can't have one without the other. It's all good. And you, you end up with this distorted picture of who God is, most of all. So there's a, an old hymn, you know this one? Immortal, invisible, God only wise. Not my favorite hymn, but it's okay. <laughs> but... Marcionism essentially gives a, a vision of God where we instead would have to say, immoral, inconsistent, God not so wise. <laughs> One of the things he would say is like in the beginning, you remember in the garden and after the fall and then God is in the cool of the garden. You remember what his first thing is that he says? Where are you? And Marcion says, this just shows that the Old Testament God is ignorant. He doesn't, right, like, boo, boo. Good reaction. In fact, in hearing that plaintive cry, where are you? It's not, out of, it's not out of ignorance, out of mercy, right? It's out of the broken heart of the father that desires his children to be reunited with him. But this is the kind of picture that Marcion ultimately presents of God. So what's at stake here? So much is at stake with Marcionism. The Jewishness of Jesus. I, I always have to flip out the, the confirmation kids when I tell them that Jesus was Jewish. They're like, wait, what? Wasn't Jesus Christian? This doesn't make sense. <laughs> he's, he's the Jewish Messiah for all nations. Uh, what's at stake is the goodness of creation. So the God of the Old Testament is the God who made the heavens and the earth, who said in the beginning, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Is that not true? Thirdly, the role of the law in the life of the believer. So does the law still have a positive role to play as well as a convicting role to play in the life of Christians? Marcion would say no, although he would still smuggle in when the law of love. And then ultimately, the integrity of God, his character, his personality, his word, his promises extending from age to age. So you can see there's a lot at stake here. Yes, Andy? Does Marcion uh, 
magnifier talk about you know the law that's written on the heart mm. that's part of the new life that's a good question so yeah sandy is saying does marcian asking if does marcian talk about the law as it's written on the heart the, or the conscience, you know, Romans 2 talks this way. I don't know. That's a good question to ask. Like, do you still have a place for conscience? Because you can bury the law as best as you want, but still it's going to be addling your conscience. It doesn't just go away because you say, oh, we got rid of it. Yeah, Hans. What is Marcionism's law of love? No, the law, that love, love your neighbor as you, lo as you love yourself. I mean, just what Jesus says and, and say, but that... He wouldn't put that in the category of law. And people still today, sometimes they'll put it in the category of, you'll hear things like, well, that's a New Testament injunction. That's an evangelical counsel. And it's like, you are bringing, you need to put your thesaurus down and just be honest about what we're talking about here, right? I, that's basically just trying to, to futz around with it. Yeah. Yeah, George. Um, the current problems between the Palestinians and and Israel. Uh -huh. Does that have anything to do with this? As a theological kind of issue? I mean... Um, is it more of a turf battle? Ah, uh, yeah. Others would be better to speak on that than me. I have the impression it's, it's more of a turf battle, but I think it does have theological roots to it, for sure. Um, but I'm not the best to, to speak there's on some that. some Palestinians that are Christian. Are oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of Christians that are, that are in Palestine um, that end up being caught in the crossfire with all of this, so, yeah. I don't understand, you know, the student uprising in the colleges and in New York City. I don't understand why that hatred is, you know. I know, I, there, I, it's profound, the hatred in the heart of man, the ways that we will find, I mean, just the pure evil that's out there. Um, and to the extent to which these things are kind of theologically motivated, it's hard to say. I think among something like Hamas, which incidentally, I was reading um, uh, a review or more of a Bible study from a pastor, Nabil, Nabil Noor, I believe is how you pronounce it. He's one of the vice presidents of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's himself, get this, he was born in Nazareth, raised in, in Nazareth, like the actual Nazareth. Not like Nazareth, Pennsylvania or something like that. Um, but uh, ethnically, he's a Palestinian, and now he has become an American citizen. He's a, he's a pastor in our church body. And so he has this incredible perspective on, on all of this. And one of the things he pointed out that I'd forgotten is that, ironically, the Hebrew word, there's a Hebrew word, Hamas, which means violence. Um, now, that's kind of coincidence because that they got it from Arabic, and it's, which are related Semitic languages, and it's an acronym, actually. I forget what the acronym stands for. But in any case, it, in, in some ways it's a, a, a different topic, but I think it is related in the sense of you know, how, how are we to regard and to view the Jewishness of the scriptures and still God's character of our Messiah. So then let's get into this refuting Marcionism. And Hans already laid out the first argument against it. Number three on your handout. Jesus came to fulfill the law. To fulfill the law. So, quoted from Matthew 5, earlier in that Sermon on the Mount, Marcion just doesn't want to pay as close of attention to verse 17. Jesus says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. L let me just pause there. What's the difference between abolish and fulfill? And, and both of them, you're like, you're moving beyond it in some ways. So how, what's the nuance of difference there? East and west. 
Okay, east and west. Well, you build on one. Okay, you build on one. And so in that sense, you kind of supersede it. But it's still, it's there as part of the foundation. Whereas with abolish... Yeah, new foundation, you're, it's, you're dis, there's deconstruction, right? That's right? And it's something totally different. Yeah, that's good. That building metaphor, I think, is helpful. And certainly, I mean, um, the scriptures talk that way. Ephesians 2 speaks of how the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, that the, our foundation is not just the apostles, not just the New Testament teachings, but it's, it's God's word it's been, as it's been handed down from the people of old. So to talk about how Jesus fulfills it, that's a big difference between fulfilling and abolishing. He goes on to say, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is telling us is that ultimately the righteousness that we receive from him is going to supersede the Pharisaic righteousness, which ultimately was in many respects a self-righteousness. Um, but it's not, it doesn't get there by abrogating, by abolishing the law, but by fulfilling it. When we read that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, from Romans 10 that I quoted a moment ago, that Greek word for end is a, a freighted word. It's a, good one, it's a good one to know that you can just kind of drop in uh, casual conversation. Um, telos, okay? So uh, telos can mean end as in the end, finis. But it, it also, and even more so, means the fulfillment, the goal, the culmination. Okay? So Jesus is the telos of the law. He is the one to whom the law is always pointing. That's where, that's where he wants to, to focus our attention. So the first response then in refuting Marcionism is to say, no, Jesus didn't come to just pitch the law. He doesn't throw out the baby. He keeps the bath water, right? Again, why are people always trying to throw babies out of baths? <laughs> Leave the baby. If you need to get rid of the bath water. Yes, Andy. So the other word for testament is covenant. Yes, good. And so... If yep. Jesus says this is my new covenant, yes. what is he saying? It, it, it presupposes, so um, our word testament, Sandy's pointing out, is the, it's the same word for covenant. Okay, so it's the Greek uh, diatheke. So diatheke means, uh, means covenant. It goes back to the, the Old Testament idea where already with um, Abraham, we're reading this with the confirmation kids, of Abraham and the covenant that God makes with him and then um, uh, the promise that in him and through him all families of the earth are going to be blessed. And then there's the, the promise given to, um, as, as well, to Noah. Well, actually, Noah even predates that one. The promise of the, the covenant with the rainbow. Um, fast forward, you've got the covenant with David, these promises. God is a, a promise-making God. You've got the covenant on Sinai, the covenant of the law. But ultimately, that old covenant has to be fulfilled in the new covenant. And in many respects, the new covenant that Christ has brought about is unintelligible. It doesn't make sense apart from that old covenant. They go hand in hand in that, in that way. Does that answer your question? Well, yeah, I mean, I just, from, as I sort out the... Um, literal interpretation of how to keep the Sabbath holy. Oh, sure. That's the... That's oh, the good. Day. And that's, you know, they go to great lengths to um, 
you know, differentiate between yeah. old covenant and new covenant if you want to separate yourself from that law that was given to yeah. Israel. Right. To Israel. So and uh, not to Yes. Us. Uh, to us. So good. So that's kind of another another uh, can of beans that we could open up. But Sandy's pointing out, you know, among Seventh Day Adventists, they're almost like the hyper opposite of Marcionites. Is that fair to say, Sandy? Where they're still upholding and keeping and trying to live according to Old Testament laws in many respects. Most famously, when it comes to the Sabbath, where they still celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday. That's kind of the whole the whole reason there. Um, but uh, yeah, that. That might be an, another conversation for another day. But yeah. yeah, but to recognize that it's fulfilled. This is why in the, the small catechism explanation to the Sabbath commandment, you shall keep the, the, the honor of the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Um, Luther actually goes in what seems like a totally random direction. He says, what is, the, what is this commandment about? He says, we should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching in his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Like, that doesn't say anything about what day of the week to worship on or whatever. But Luther's getting to the heart of the matter and saying that what the Sabbath commandment was ever and always about was about worshiping God, hearing his word, resting and receiving from him. I mean, by fulfilling that commandment, yes. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He is our Sabbath rest. That's right. And we saw that in Hebrews, didn't we? Yeah. Yes. Um, didn't Luther have a problem with Jewish Poof. Thanks, George. Um, <laughs> well, uh, so the question is, didn't, didn't Luther have a problem with Jewish people? All right, here's, here's the short answer to this, okay? Um, did, did Luther have anti-Semitic tendencies? He definitely did, especially later in life. And I've heard some um, teachers say, Luther maybe lived a little bit too long for his own good. <laughs> Got a little cranky and crotchety in his old age. We don't know anybody like that, but... Um, but, that's not, but that's not to excuse by, by any means. Um, later in life, he absolutely got, he, well, he got disenchanted with the fact that Jewish people had not received Jesus as the Messiah. It was a theological beef, but he turned it into very much a, um, what, he, he said some disgusting, despicable things. And when I talk about, like, on Reformation Day, we said, you know, the reason we celebrate Reformation Day is not because, hey, Martin Luther's so great. Like, there's things about him that we honor. We give thanks to God for how he used him. But brother also had a foot of clay, right? He, he, he was a sinner. So this is something that, as Lutherans, we do not need to like, cover up or pretend you know, that, wasn't, that wasn't part of it. Was that his motivating impetus? Was an animus against Jews? By no means. Like it, was, it was very much down the line, and it, was, it came, in some respects, from his attitude as a pastor and as a missionary, just that frustration. But it went in the, in the wrong way. Was it picked up by people who had genuine anti-Semitism and that animus drove and compelled their whole worldview centuries later? Unfortunately, yes. Um, but that wasn't, that was Luther's own central heart. So that's a short answer. It didn't really have anything to do with <clears throat> It wasn't, no, it wasn't, it wasn't a Marcion kind of tendency or anything. Luther was a professor of Old Testament. A lot of people don't realize this. They assume that he was a New Testament professor or a theology professor. He was a professor of Old Testament. I mean, he wrote this huge commentary on Genesis. The guy loved the Old Testament and the God of the Old Testament. So, yeah. Pastor, yeah. didn't he open the Bible up to the common German person? He did. People? Yeah. The Church of the Open Bible is what yes. I was taught. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, he, he opened the scriptures, not so just. Read it. Yeah, so they, they could read it. Not just New Testament, Old Testament as well. Yeah, very much so. 
All right, then, continuing this refutation of Marcionism. Number four, judgment and the idea of judgment, it's not just an Old Testament phenomenon. Okay, this is part of Marcion's case. It's like, ah, Old Testament God is very judgmental. New Testament, don't have anything to do with that kind of judgment. Well, guess what? Judgment is a New Testament reality as well. Um, I mean, when we read in Exodus about the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, the people trembling, they're so afraid, they're fearful of the presence of the Lord. Well, go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews picks up on just this very vision. And again, we, we did a long study of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, you just can't have if you're going to be a Marcionite. The book of Hebrews is basically the whole thing is just a gloss on the Old Testament generally and Leviticus in particular. And so there would be no room for it, um, be that as it may. Uh, Hebrews 12, starting with verse 25, says, See then that you don't refuse him who's speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I'll shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is the key verses. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Like, if I just read that to you and didn't tell you Old Testament or New Testament, you'd say, oh, 100% from the Old Testament, right? God is a consuming fire. But his character has not changed. What's changed is that now we have seen the good news, that Christ is the one ultimately on whom that fire has fallen, that he has absorbed it and been immolated on our behalf. But that doesn't change God's character. And we can't just soft pedal the law or say, well, he just kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know, that God deals with sin the way that my kids deal with dirty rooms. Just pushing everything underneath the bed or in the closet and pretending like it's not there. One day, somebody's going to open the door of the closet and you're going to be buried, right? <laughs> Theologically, spiritually speaking, the same thing can happen because the bill has to come due. It's what Christ has done for us. Right? The debt has been paid. He, he did it already. He's fulfilled it, but he didn't abolish it. And I'd say one thing more along these lines, or ask, I suppose. Can judgment ever be good news? We tend to focus on, oh, God, justice and judgment. That's, that's bad news. We don't want to have anything to do with it. But can judgment ever be good news? Lily, you're nodding your head yes. Yeah. How come? Uh, uh, just like your better judgment. I mean, that's the thing we have. Sure. And you're protected in your better judgment. Yeah. So there's such a thing as a, a, a better judgment and the protection that comes with that, the blessing that comes with that. It's yeah. Justice. Justice, right. Do we, want, uh, do we want injustice to continue to reign? Well, nobody would say, yeah, of course. But God's judgment means him putting things to rights. Without judgment, what's the reason to do good? Sure. To be good. Yeah. I mean, we would ultimately say that we have a, a motivation that, that stems from, from gratitude as well. But you're absolutely right that uh, if there's no sense of, of justice, of judgment, if things aren't finally going to be restored and put back together, that's an easy path toward a kind of nihilism that says nothing really matters. Nothing really matters. But it does matter. It all matters. The solution is not to pretend that all that brokenness and all that injustice is not in the world, but instead to look to Christ, our gracious judge, 
the one who's going to come to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new, put it all back together. So judgment, not just an Old Testament phenomenon, New Testament as well, and in fact, it's part of the good news. Conversely, we also need to point out that grace isn't just a New Testament phenomenon. This is maybe an even um, bigger failure of a, a kind of easygoing modern Marcionism is it misses the fact that all throughout the scriptures, New Testament and Old, God reveals himself as a God of grace. Just to point to a couple of verses, go back to the book of Deuteronomy, fifth book of your Bible, chapter 7. Okay, um, this is the Lord speaking to his people, to the Israelites. Just listen to the tenderness of the summons from the Savior here. He says, verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What God's saying is, listen, guys, you're my chosen people, not because you were so chooseworthy, if that's a word, not because there was so much that when I looked at you, I was like, oh, these guys are better, they're bigger than everyone else. He's like, no, you were the fewest of all the peoples. Read your Old Testament. You know, the most common description of the Israelites is that they were stiff-necked, right? That they, they were stubborn in their hearts. And yet God says, I have chosen you because of my love for you, made you my treasured possession. He's a God of grace and love. Maybe the most... Um, clearest description of his character, and this is quoted many times, Old Testament and New, comes first to Exodus 34. Moses asks to see the glory of God. And this is what God says to Moses and to us. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, it's Yahweh, that personal name of God. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That last part of it, people will focus on that and say, oh, look, at, see, God is vindictive and he's just trying to continue to visit sin on people. Missing the forest for the trees here and that the fact that God says, no, listen, for thousands of generations I want to bring my grace. A similar kind of statement is um, spoken of throughout the Psalms where it says, his anger lasts for a moment, but his favor is for how long? A lifetime. That's the ratio of God's grace. You want to think about it that way. It's not that there isn't judgment. It's not that there isn't conviction of sin, but to recognize that God's love and grace and mercy, that's his proper work. And that's what floods, uh, his forgiveness floods all of our sin, all the things that would separate us. From him. So grace, that mercy of the Lord, not just a New Testament phenomenon. And perhaps you could think of many other places in the Old Testament 
where you see grace, whether you're talking about the sacrifices, whether you're talking about the, the stories of the kind of sinners that God chooses and has patience with. Even King David, that great man after his own heart, who was an adulterer and a murderer again and again and again. Even Abraham, Abraham too, was you know, throwing his own wife under the bus. There's all, when you look, read the Old Testament, you don't see the story of all of these great, upright people. Instead, you see sinners saved by grace. That's God's character, his personality, the whole way through. All right, so then let's tie this up together. On the back of your handout, so important to recognize the character and message of God are constant. If it weren't, if he wasn't, where would we be able to, to really stand? We looked at a verse recently from Hebrews. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. If God's character is not constant, if his will and his promises toward you and me are shifting sand, that's no foundation on which to build. But as it is, Christ and his word is a solid rock that is unchanging in the midst of an ever-changing world, that we're able to stand sure on him. Hebrews says that his word, his promises, are a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It can only be the case if God is constant. I love this verse from 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says that as surely as God is faithful, a word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The promises of God find their yes in our Lord Jesus. Yeah, so David. It just seems like the Marcionism concept devalues Christ. It absolutely I mean, does. That we don't even need a savior. Yes. Really. Yeah, no, the, uh, David's pointing out, I mean, Marcionism ultimately is going to devalue Christ because it's not, it's going to minimize his work um, and it's going to emphasize just, you know, the, the kind of ethical sides of it, which of course is there, but in which, in which case you miss the fact that Jesus came not just to give some nice teachings, but to die and to be raised. Okay, so how can you not be a Marcionite? You're all on the edge of your seat. <laughs> One, read the Old Testament. Now you're like, oh, pastor, well, you just got us reading through all the Gospels right now, you, you know, crypto-Marcionite. Actually, if one of you called me a crypto-Marcionite, I might be so happy at that. that I'd almost be like, oh, gosh, that's really good. Um, well, I'll take the social media. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't go to this church. Pastor's crypto Marcy and I. Read the Old Testament. Secondly, honor God's law. Honor God's law. It has been fulfilled in Christ, but now freed by him, we do delight in God's law to follow, to walk in his ways. Not as a means of uh, attaining our salvation or receiving his favor, but because we're already favored, we desire, oh, that the Lord would guide my ways and keep, my, keep his statutes still. Thirdly, respect and defend Jewish people. Now, I don't mean to step into this as like a big political claim or something like this. I'm just talking about as those who are the ancient heirs of God's promises. We, we, we care about them, 
Right. Still do. God has made these promises to the, the Jewish people of old, desire for them to know uh, the Messiah, Jesus. But we, we don't want to um, give that short shrift. And then finally, this is more about theological things, especially for us preachers, but to resist a stark dichotomy between law and gospel. See, law and gospel ultimately are, are complementary. God's law is pointing us to Jesus. And then the, the gospel, freed by Jesus, we desire to keep his will and walk in his ways. When we talk about the law, that's, just all, that's what we mean. It's God's will for his creatures. And so it's not a dichotomy. It's not a law versus gospel. It's a law and gospel. Whether you find that law, Old Testament, New Testament, where you find that gospel, new or old, it's always about God's complementary words, speaking both those words of command and promise, keeping them together in Christ. All right, now you're wondering then, your quiz answers, let's see how you do. Eh, there might be some trick questions here. Uh, so, <laughs> Number one, Jesus shows compassion, but the Old Testament God of wrath doesn't. True or false? False. false. Okay. Number two, the Old and New Testaments are both equally parts of the Bible? True. True. Good. Love is the opposite of the law? False. False. Good. Number four. Jesus didn't come to fulfill the law, but to abolish it. False. And God's character changed between Old and New Testament times? False. False. All right, good. You all get an A. You're Orthodox. I'm glad to hear it. No crypto Marcionites among you. Uh, thank you. Good to be with you. We'll continue our study next week. God bless.